Hi, I would like to invite you to attend our second annual Eucharistic Congress here in the Diocese of Tyler. We are going to host the Congress this year on June 9th and 10th at Bishop Gorman High School in Tyler. Our theme for this year is One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism. We will have keynotes in English by Dr. John Bergsma from Franciscan University of Steubenville and in Spanish by Bishop Daniel Flores from the Diocese of Brownsville. To register or to find more information, you can go to stphilipinstitute.org. Thanks. In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we're going to look at the second half of the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, Gaudium et Spes. And I'm going to offer you an overview of that section of the document through the lens of Catholic social teaching. Please enjoy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip, that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, welcome back to the St. Philip Institute podcast. My name is Luke Arredondo, and I am the Director of Faith Formation here at the St. Philip Institute in the Diocese of Tyler. Um, this is going to be a discussion on the second part of the Vatican II document on the Church in the Modern World, so Gaudium et Spes, Part Two. Um, if you didn't see Part One, Part One of this document lies lays out a lot of doctrinal uh, principles. Um, there are some things that are that are more pastoral. It is a, the pastoral constitution on the Church in the modern world. Uh, but the second half of the document, which we're going to be discussing now, really deals with a lot more contemporary current problems. And this is contemporary and current problems in 1965 when the document was promulgated. Um, and so because of that, uh, there, there's a lot more sort of conditional, um, you know, treatments and, and considerations of things that were happening then and the, the state of the world at that time. Uh, now, that part of the document is rather long, and it, and it talks about a lot of things. What I wanted to do is just right at the beginning kind of give you sort of a, an index, like what is in part two of this document, so that if you are playing the at-home game and you want to read through it yourself, you have a good sense what to expect. But then I thought, instead of, as I've done most of the time throughout this series, trying to walk from here, this paragraph, and we'll start here and we'll go to the end of the document, instead of looking at it that way, I thought I might try looking at the second half of Gaudium et Spes, part two, um, through the lens of Catholic social teaching and the key themes in Catholic social teaching. Because what you can see as you work, if you do put in the time to, to, to read this part of the document, what you're going to see is there's an attempt for by the Church to kind of go through discrete and separate issues, but they all kind of blend and bleed together because in the fabric of human society, like, things aren't always in neat and distinct categories, and so there's, there's a lot of sort of overlap. So basically, uh, part two uh, of this document, which has this very cool heading, Some Problems of Special Urgency, um, has several different chapters. I think it's five chapters. 
Um, and it discusses these things. So there's a chapter on marriage and family life, which has a lot of teachings on marriage and sexuality. Then there is uh, a chapter, and I'm not sure if that they're if they're in this order necessarily, but there is a chapter on economics. Uh, economic development talks a lot about the changing economy, um, the way that the world was changing, and the way that money was you know being treated differently. There's a chapter on politics, um, on uh, the importance of political action and involvement and participation, and and what politics was looking like in the 1960s, and there were a lot of things that were changing. There's a chapter on culture. Um, what is culture? What are the goods of culture? How does the church sort of fit into um, this this concept of, of human culture? And then there's a chapter on war, uh, peace, or uh, avoiding war. I'm not sure what the title of the chapter is, but it focuses on war, and in, and in particular way is, you know, remember, this is written in 1965, is kind of looking back at World War II, but also assessing the current situation and trying to kind of project what happens in the future. So these are the topics that are that are sort of uh, outlined in the second part of this document. As I said, what I'd like to do today, instead of trying to kind of walk from one chapter to the next and cover everything, which is impossible even if we had two hours, there's so much, it's very rich, is instead kind of look through the lens of Catholic social teaching, key principles of Catholic social teaching, and, and just sort of kind of outline for you how they're sort of present in this document. Um, so that's so that's what we're going to do. So the, the key principles of Catholic social teaching are, first, life and dignity of the human person, then the call to family, community, and participation, um, rights and responsibilities, and the relationship between those, the option for the poor and the vulnerable, the dignity of work and the rights of workers, um, the sixth one is solidarity, and the seventh one is care for creation, which it doesn't really show up a lot in this specific document, so we actually really won't talk about care for creation necessarily, although you can see kind of how it's it's blended in. Um, in the conclusion of Gaudium et Spes, I think there's uh, there's an important line uh, that, that's, that's easy to sort of overlook where the Church says, because these things are all happening right now, and all of these topics, marriage, culture, economics, politics, war— are so sort of volatile and, and subject to different changing conditions, these recommendations are going to have to be followed up on, and the and everything we've said here is not going to be the final word. And I think that's a very sort of healthy perspective because um, sometimes you know we can we can look at at the text, particularly of this document, and say, boy, that 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 forecast maybe didn't go the way that the council fathers thought thought that it would. Meaning sometimes situations got worse, and sometimes they got better in ways that the council didn't expect. Um, so, anyways, to start, let's look at this idea of life and the dignity of the human person. Now, in part one of Gaudium et Spes, there was a lot of teaching on human dignity as sort of the foundation of the way the church is kind of relating to the modern world. Um, so human dignity is really like a theological principle that kind of grounds the first part of this document, uh, but the idea of the importance of life and the dignity of the human person you really see present in Gaudium et Spes Part Two when it talks about marriage and family life. Now, we actually are going to have an upcoming episode where I sit down with Ms. Deanna Johnston, the director of family life for our diocese, 
and talk explicitly um, for, for, well, not explicitly, but talk for a long time specifically about that teaching on marriage and family um, from the second part of, Gaud- of Gaudium et Spes. Uh, but in, in just the, sort of this summary, what you see really clearly sort of the most important concept that it lays out about marriage and family is that family, the human family, is the foundation or the key to society. So we see the way the church looks at the family as being like the microcosm of where we can begin to solve all of the other problems that the world is facing. So in a good and ordered human family of Christian marriage, right, the sacrament of marriage, parents doing all of the things they're supposed to do, you are teaching your children, if there are children, you're teaching them the right way to see the world. You're teaching them the value of sacrifice and teaching them solidarity with others, rights and responsibilities, all these things. So the first issue that the document actually does address in part two is marriage and family. And this is because family is sort of the foundation for everything. So the church has a lot to say about the 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 idea of family not just because it's connected with a sacrament, with the sacrament of marriage, but because it ties in all of these other themes of Catholic social teaching, um, and, and it's the place where it's the school of deeper humanity, where we learn these things. Um, so that principle is is evident first. There's a discussion, for instance, in the, in the teaching on marriage and family about you know, the, the, the evil of abortion. There's a discussion about population problems in, in some part of the, of the document and about contraception, the idea that it's becoming more, more common. And as I said, we'll, I'll, I'll have a much longer discussion about that, that part of the text with um, our director of family life, Ms. Deanna Johnston, in the next episode. Um, all right, so the first principle of Catholic social teaching, again, is life and dignity of the human person. And that, that really is the foundation for everything. The, the next is the call to family, community, and participation. I want to really focus especially on this idea of participation. Throughout the whole second part of the document, where there's discussion about family life, economics, culture, politics, and war, in every section of the document, if you were to go back and just look for where is the council calling everybody to deeper participation, you're just going to see it all over the place. Um And the idea here is really critical that if you are a human person, you have a right to participate in the life of your community, to participate in its life of politics, to participate in the arena of economics, in culture. All of these are are places where you are called as a human being created in the image likeness of God to be part of that conversation, to be part of that sphere. One of the concerns that's present in all of these different chapters is places in which, or, or, or countries, or not even necessarily countries, areas of society like economics, right, which goes across countries, where, where not everybody gets to participate, where people are being excluded unjustly by those that have power. And the church wants to say, you can't do that. Like, whoever has the power... Obviously, human power sometimes has to be held by people. That's fine. But it cannot be held in an exclusive way that's going to kind of push everybody out. And this is something that's really seen clearly um, in Catholic social teaching, that we are all supposed to be able to participate in the way proper to us in economics, culture, politics, you know, family, everything. So throughout the whole second part of this document, you see this again and again and again, 
the idea that we need to involve as many people in being part of the discussion, in making decisions, and not in just making decisions, because everybody can't make laws, for instance, but the people who do get to make laws or the people who do get to set up a certain economic um, you know, process or, or that, that are, you know, have important roles in, in the way that the markets are going, those people also need to make their decisions in light of how can we allow more people to participate justly in this arena, whether that's culture, or economics, or, or whatever. So the call to family, community, and participation, that participation thing comes out really strongly. So does community. Because again, chapter one, or part one of, of Gaudium et Spes talks about our creation in the image and likeness of God, right? Because we are human beings created in the divine image, we're called to communion and to community with others. So we can't be making individual decisions. And that works in two different ways. Like people that have power aren't supposed to exclude others, right? And just like make decisions that only benefit them. Um, uh, so that's one way in which communion is, is really important. Uh, and, and the other way is that we are required to be part of a human community. So that means we cannot sort of distance ourselves from everything. So, so if you're powerful, you shouldn't be, you know, individually making decisions that benefit only you. But it, even if you're someone who maybe doesn't have any power, you should not, the, the council teaches a bunch of, in a bunch of different ways in this second part of Gaudium et Spes, you shouldn't remove yourself from society. You shouldn't try and say, I'm just not going to worry about everything. I'm just going to sort of, you know, stay on my, my land and not worry about anything else that happens. I'm going to live off the grid. The church really says, like, that's that's actually not a healthy thing. You need to participate and be in communion with others. So the first, again, was we started with life and dignity of the human person, talked about community and family and participation in particular. Uh, another big concept for Catholic social teaching is rights and responsibilities. So another key concept that comes across, especially in the second part of this document, part one really hits big on human dignity. Part two of the document really again and again and again comes back to the common good. So for instance, when there's a teaching about the family, it's the family in the light of the common good. When there is a teaching about economics, it's economics in light of the common good. The common good is basically the foundation for a just social order. Um, and there, there is a good definition of the common good in, uh, in the text of the document. Uh, the council defines it this way. It says, the common good is the sum of those conditions of social life whereby men, families, and associations more adequately and readily may attain their own perfection. So basically, it's the common good is a society in which good outcomes are possible for people, right? Where no one's being prevented from reaching their perfection as a human being. And that means they're sort of temporal perfection, right? That they have the, the freedom to pursue a profession, uh, that they have the, the freedom to pursue, you know, the, the well-being of their good, of their family in terms of temporal goods, a home, education, um, you know, food, all those sorts of things, and their spiritual good. So does society allow for that to happen? In the discussion of rights and responsibilities, both of those things are closely connected to the common good. So rights have to be in place in a just society. 
or you cannot achieve the common good. If you're not given your rights, you can't fulfill your perfection as a human being that you are called to, even in the temporal sphere, let alone in the spiritual sphere. So you have a right to the the access to education and a right to practice your religion, for instance. But rights by themselves don't make sense. We have to consider the other side of a right, which is our responsibilities. So rights in in a certain way have to be defended. Sometimes we're defending our own rights. Sometimes we're defending the rights of others. Um, And that's sort of a a human responsibility to to protect and defend the rights of others. Uh, But we also have to realize our own duties that come with the rights that we're given. So if you're given the right to education, then you have a responsibility and a duty to seek that out to really take advantage of that right and not to just sort of you know lazily let let that slip away from you if you have it all the more if you don't have these rights you have to really fight for them but even if you do right you have to the the responsibility to actually uphold them take advantage of them find your perfection through the rights that you're given so rights and responsibilities is a key for this document that comes across, as I said, in the discussion of family life. There's rights and responsibilities. In the economic order, rights and responsibilities. Politics, culture, war, all of them involve rights on the one hand and consequent responsibilities or duties that flow from those rights. Okay, another important principle of Catholic social teaching that you see at work in this section of the document is the option for the poor. Now, I started this conversation by saying that this section of the document attempts to discuss like discrete areas of human life, family, culture, politics, economics, and war. And it tries to sort of kind of siphon them off into individual areas, but they all kind of bleed together in certain ways. Like you can't have a discussion of economics without talking about the family. You can't talk about war right, without talking about politics. So, so they're all sort of, they, they bleed together. This is most clear when you talk about the, the Catholic social teaching idea about the option for the poor and the vulnerable. Because in every situation, in a, each of the chapters on marriage, war, economics, politics, culture, po- the poor are central to that conversation, or they ought to be. So the council calls uh, calls modern modern human beings again and again to remember the poor in its deliberations, to remember the poor in its decisions, and and this is it comes in an in interesting way. So for instance, it lauds technological developments. The council says it's great that mankind is achieving so much in terms of technology. It's great that in some places there's huge economic growth but we can't let that economic growth or that scientific progress happen at the expense of the poor. If it's unjustly harming people um, who are involved in the production of a good and they're not receiving any of the profit, then that economic uh, progress really needs to be reevaluated. Maybe it's not really progress at all. It's an unjust treatment of, of the, the poor and, and vulnerable. In terms of econo- or political developments, right, if certain people are getting power and getting access to political participation that didn't have it, but another group somewhere else is being excluded, well, then that's not a very good thing. If democracy is spreading, that's great. But are those democracies then becoming power hungry and going to, you know, sort of try and conquer somehow other territories or make their decisions about how to defend their rights at the expense of other countries who don't have good political leadership? These sorts of things really make clear 
uh, how you can't get away from the question of poverty, even when you're not talking just about money. And I think that's a really, really rich contribution of this document and of Catholic social teaching generally, that poverty is not just about money. It has to do with structures of the economy, structures of morality even, um, and that the poor really are all of our responsibility. So we should treat the poor as human beings, as people, not as an afterthought, not as sort of, well, we're going to make our decisions and then we'll see how it impacts the poor. But even in discussions of war, how is that going to impact impact the poor? Um, and there is a really, really clear teaching that when it comes to, to you know helping the poor, we all as Christians especially have a responsibility to give to them of our own goods and not merely out of our surplus. So there's 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 references to the idea that, you know, uh, the church fathers teaching that, you know, if we don't feed a poor man then we've killed him. And and it's a it's a strong teaching, right? One of the things that the, that the council notes and I said it a, a little a little while ago at the end of the document, we got to follow up on what is proposed here. The church has done a very, very serious, uh, or taken taken seriously the task of continuing to teach on the poor. Um, and you see this in a really beautiful way in the teaching of Pope Francis. Um, uh, in his document, um, uh, Laudato Si on the Environment, he talks about the poor in, in really profound ways that show that you, you just can't get away from that discussion. It's not—poverty is not— just and maybe not primarily about money. It has to do with how we see human beings, how we how we uphold human dignity. All right, uh, another big principle of social teaching that you see all throughout this second part of the document is the dignity of work and the consequent rights of workers. So this is a little bit more kind of refined uh, or contained, I guess, in the the, the chapter the chapter from this document on economics, like what is a worker, where is the value of labor? Um, and, and I just wanted to read um, just really briefly a, a, a little bit of a quotation from uh, this chapter. So this is in part two. It's going to be chapter, I think chapter three is the one on economics and economic development. Um, so this is the first paragraph in that chapter. I haven't done any reading so far. I'm almost 20 minutes in. I haven't done any reading from the text, which is, I think, probably good every now and then to just kind of speak to you in a little bit more synthetic way in, instead of piecemealing it. So this is paragraph 63. Again, the very beginning of the chapter on economic and social life. In the economic and social realms, too, the dignity and complete vocation of the human person and the welfare of society as a whole are to be respected and promoted. Notice it, it refers to human dignity, and then it has this phrase, complete vocation, the complete vocation of the human person. Anytime you see that language, what, the, what, what a church document means by complete vocation is, how is the temporal, human, earthly good of the person being, you know, uh, treated? Like, what, what does their earthly uh, forecast look like? And that's only part because the full human vocation or the complete vocation is their temporal or earthly good and their spiritual and eternal good. The church wants us to be concerned about both of those things. If you have to pick one or the other, if you had to pick one, the eternal vocation, the eternal dimension matters a little bit more, but it never makes sense to only focus on that just as much 
As it never makes sense to only focus on the earthly or temporal sphere, we can't focus only on the eternal spiritual dimension. We have to focus on the, what the complete vocation. So then the, the next sentence is, is really the key here on, in terms of the dignity of work. So it says, for man is the source, the center, and the purpose of all economic and social life. Um, and as it develops its teaching on economics, it keeps coming back time and time again to the idea that no matter what kind of changes are happening, no matter what kind of technology is involved, what what sort of you know power brokering is happening within the the, the sphere of labor and economics, we have to remember that it's the human being at the center, the one doing the work that should get the priority of our judgment and consideration. That doesn't mean that you can't make money or you can't you know, have progress in technology. It means, though, that all of that has to be evaluated through the lens of what's its impact on the laborer, the person. And in discussing the good of labor and of work, that, that, like, that's really important. So the, the, the council's not saying everybody just needs to have money and nobody needs to work, right? The council's saying people need to work. Work is important. It's so important that Christ gave us the example of living as a human laborer, working right alongside Joseph as a carpenter, right? So we have that sort of divine model that labor matters. St. Paul says, you know, some of you are, are busybodies instead of, instead of working. Um, so work is important, but it's important because of the human being who does it. The council teaches this and then says we got to follow up on these things. If you want to read a great follow-up on this, read John Paul II's Laborum Exorcens on the dignity of work. Uh, on that topic, he's so, so profound um, and has, has a lot to add to this discussion. Um, so uh, one example, again, of the way that all of these things are tied together, uh, something this, that I do want to point out, in his discussion about economic life and social life, it's talking about the importance of the worker in, in a lot of different ways. And it brings the discussion around to the concept of family. Um, so here's another, another quotation from the same chapter on, on economics. Finally, remuneration for labor, this is paragraph 67, remuneration for labor is to be such that man may be furnished the means to cultivate worthily his own material, social, cultural, and spiritual life, and that of his dependents in view of the function and productiveness of each one and the conditions of the factory or workshop and the common good. So it discusses the importance of labor. And notice this, labor needs to provide man with the, the possibility of fulfilling his temporal ends well. To, to, it spe says, specifies his material, social, cultural life and his spiritual life. So if you're, if you're having to work, if people are having to work so much that they don't have a chance to have a spiritual life, the church says that's a problem. But also that their wages, the wages given to, to a person, should be sufficient to provide for them and their dependents. In other words, a wage is not even just about the individual, but about the family. Um, and in making this argument, there is a, a citation of Leo XIII and, the, and, and a wealth of other Catholic social teaching documents that call for really a just wage is a wage that can provide for a family. Um, so you see, again, right, this this connection, as I said, between, you know, the, the fundamental principles. We're talking about the dignity of work, but what comes around in that discussion? 
the importance of family life, and those two are are closely connected. This is one of the reasons why this second part of Gaudium et Spes, which deals with all these different issues, is is so rich, but it's also so difficult to summarize. Uh, because if you if you're just talking about one piece of it, you're missing other parts of the conversation. Um, another another you know principle of social teaching is solidarity, and you see this in a particular way, I think, in the call to peace, uh, which is in, which takes place in this this the fifth chapter, I think, of the document of part two, the discussion on war. So the 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 chapter on war to read that chapter today, um, you, you know, without an awareness and a sort of like visceral. Uh, remembrance of, of World War II, I think it's hard to appreciate and understand what the council is trying to talk about. So there's this recognition, which we saw in part one, that man is called to greatness, but we also have the prospect of misery because of our human sin. When it talks about war, it talks about the destruction of the world that is so possible, the elimination of, of, a, of an individual race and what, a, what an atrocity that was and how that can never happen again. And then it talks about a true concept of peace. It says peace is not merely the absence of war, and peace is not merely nobody having war because everybody's stockpiled nuclear arms and we're all afraid to strike first because we don't want to be mutually destroyed. It says that's that's not peace. There's a, a, a rich discussion about whether what to do with with the arms race and how to that the, the church really wants nations of the world to step away from just stockpiling arms, and it sort of says. We should be glad. We should thank God that we're in a reprieve from terrible wars because we had World War I. Not much time went by. World War II, massive destruction. And now we're 20 years removed from that. We've had a little bit of time to think about things, but we haven't really solved the problem. And one of the, the things that's at the key of the, at, at the heart of this is that it's not just government decisions, it's not just good political or um, sort of, uh, you know, stri- uh, stri- st- strategies that can get us to peace, right? I don't know why I struggled on that word so much. We have to get to the heart of the problem, which is in the human heart. Um, so I want to read uh, a quotation from the, the chapter on war, uh, the fifth chapter of part two. Listen to this. This is paragraph 83. If we look for deeper causes, it's talking about the causes of discord, the causes of struggle, that lead to war. If we look for the deeper causes, we find them in human envy, distrust, pride, and other egotistical passions. And so the church teaches in this section of the document, if we ever want to have actual authentic peace, we have to remember our fallen nature and that we have to fight against this inclination to evil that's buried deep in the human heart, especially when the human heart is not connected to grace. So, as, as I said, this this second part of the document, right, there's so much to say, uh, and, and some of it's, you know, temporally bound, like it's it's been 60 years, and, you know, maybe these suggestions haven't been followed, uh, but I, I think that, that it's a helpful way to kind of get at sort of the complexity and the richness of this document by looking as we did through the lens of Catholic social teaching, these primary themes of, um, you know, life and the dignity of the human person, the call to family, community, and participation, rights and responsibilities, the option for the poor, the dignity of work and the rights of workers, and then solidarity. So solidarity is that idea of the human family that we're all connected 
in the discussion about peace, it really you know really comes out clearly that we've got to look out for the good of, of others um, and not merely for our own good. Now, uh, this is sort of the end of our overview of Gaudium et Spes, where I did a part one and part two, but I do want you to join me in the next episode where we're going to have uh, a long discussion with me and Deanna Johnson, our Miss Deanna Johnson, our director of family life, where we talk specifically about the council's teaching in Gaudium et Spes on marriage and the family. So this is kind of like one of those other zoom by the, the document. We're going to have a longer conversation where we zoom in and look closely at just this one part, which is going to be chapter one of part two. So Please look out for that next episode. It's going to be a great conversation. Thanks.